0: Good morning, everyone, and what a blessing it is to be with you here this morning and share with you what the Lord has placed on my heart for the people here at Monty, and I pray that it will be both a blessing for those who are here and also for those who are listening on podcast. This year will be the fourth year that we're focusing on our strategic priorities, which are the words that are placed onto the door before you enter, saying, bless, belong, believe and become. This year we're focusing on become, which is that everyone in Montmorency Community Church will become more Christ-like, ex- exercising their God-given gifts to bless and serve others and to grow the kingdom of God. And this morning, this is the fifth lesson in the Christ-likeness series, where we'll be drawing from that priority, that strategic priority, on become and focusing on Jesus in prayer. We've heard from Graham on the prayer life of Jesus that he prayed often and that he prayed before, during and after major events. We've also heard from Raf last week who, pray, who we learnt where Jesus prayed for himself, for his disciples and for all believers and as his first priority in prayer was to make sure that God was glorified and how he could support his mission in glorifying God. This morning we'll be learning about Jesus' prayer and about how he prayed for his ministry and we'll be looking at three main points this morning. At the beginning of his ministry, which is from Luke chapter 3, the calling of his disciples, which was in Luke chapter 6, and that he prayed before he teaches, which is in Luke chapter Mm 9. So let's look at the first point this morning where Jesus prayed for his ministry. From Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And in this passage, Jesus journeys from the Nazareth, to the River Jordan, to be baptised by John the Baptist. At first, John raises the point that Jesus, being sinless, did not need to be baptised. In fact, John actually says to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, it says, I need to be baptised by you. Jesus, however, tells John to baptise him in verses 15, where it says, to fulfil all righteousness. Righteousness is doing what is good and proper. They didn't need to be baptised, Jesus sets the example for us all with the public declaration through baptism that demonstrates a person's rejection of their old life and their dedication to a new life and their relationship with God. All new believers should follow this example to begin their Christian lives. As Jesus emerges out of the water, God the Father performs a miraculous, visible sign to show his approval. This comes from Matthew chapter 3. It says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And upon witnessing this, John says, And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit, come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. I don't know if many of you would know, but I quite enjoy my history, medieval in particular. But I have a passion for World War I and World War II because of my grandfather who fought in World War II and I loved hearing his stories about what he would do, where he served, what they did, and just some of his funny stories. And it gave me a very special bond with him that to this day I still miss. In one of the history books that I read, there was a man who served the British Expeditionary Force in World War I called Field Marshal Plumer. And he caught my eye as I was reading because he stood out from the other British commanders at that time period for a number of reasons. Most of you would know that during the First World War there were many battles in which there were horrendous casualties on both sides. Mm. We only have to think of the Somme or closer to home, Gallipoli. The story I read was about the Battle of Messines and if you haven't read about it, I encourage you to. It's quite a fascinating story. The battle had one of the lowest recorded number of casualties and was one of the quickest battles in World War I, with all objectives being completed in less than 12 hours. Mm. And the leader of this battle was none other than Field Marshal Plumer himself, and he was affectionately known as Daddy by his troops for his meticulous planning, technical ability, and, con- and constant concern for his troops and number of casualties. Before he went into battle... He made sure that he and his men were as prepared as possible to reach their objectives, that they could be doing so as safe as possible and that the enemy could not gain ground. Hmm. A story popped into my head when I was reading about Jesus praying and being baptised with the Holy Spirit and it took me a while to sit down and think and unpack why I'd actually made the two connections between these two stories. Jesus... Was ensuring that he was prepared as well as he could be before going to action, before he started his ministry, a trait that Field Marshal Plumer modelled. Field Marshal Plumer, though, was very different to Jesus. Jesus relied on his Father, he relied on the Holy Spirit and their guidance that he didn't rely on himself, his own power, planning or technical ability, but that he knew that he needed his father mm. and that he needed to be led and that he needed his father's blessing before going into action. Field Marshal Plumer, as we read before, relied on his technical ability, that it was on himself and his own planning. Mm. And it struck me that even though Field Marshal Plumer modelled himself after Jesus in one way. He was very different in another. And it struck me that God continues to work in a way that we th- so different to what we think, the way we operate. And I believe that Jesus very much understood that he needed to make sure he was aligned with God's will before he started his ministry. Mm. By doing so, there was no reason to be afraid as he had his father by his side and that he had him by his side always. Just after being baptised, it says in Mark 1 that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness soon after and he spends 40 days there, severely tempted and tested by Satan. Matthew 4 and Luke 4 recount Satan's attempts to make Jesus and To wear him down to the point where he would put his own life and desires ahead of God's purpose. Sounds like a pretty tough gig, doesn't it? Being in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, with no food, with wild animals around, would not only have distracted Jesus, but made it much easier for him to be led into temptation. I know this is the case when I'm most vulnerable, when I'm exhausted let alone when I'm being distracted by wild animals or had no sustenance for 40 days. When Jesus was asked by Satan to turn the stones into bread, I can imagine how tempted he must have been as he would have been starving and it would have been so easy to give him. But he didn't give him. How many times have we given him? How many times have we said no, but we go with the flow anyway? How many times have we worn ourselves down to the point where we are tempted and eventually given? I ask my wife, who regularly has our children coming home from school or kinder, feeling like they haven't seen food or milk or bread for days. They've had a hearty breakfast, a well-packed and nutritious lunchbox, but they walk into the pantry, they see chips, a muesli bar or something sweet. And they're very tempted to eat them, even though mm, mum has laid down the rules and said no. Mm. They say they're starving. But it's quite different to the picture that Jesus had, wasn't it? Where he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and had no food whatsoever. Jesus denying himself any sustenance physically for 40 days and nights is spiritually strong. He resists even Satan's offer to give Jesus full rulership over all the kingdoms of the earth without him having to preach, suffer and die if only Jesus would simply bow down and worship him. Christ refused and would not be bought. He rounds on Satan and commands him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him. Only. It is no contest. Jesus Christ will not be turned from the work God had him to do. He would not and did not give in to the temptation. Although the wilderness example is not technically a prayer, Jesus models how to fight temptation with God's word. By praying at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was seeking supernatural help from his Father, our Lord and Saviour. Jesus serves as an example for us as he began his ministry, and remember I'm talking about his public ministry. He wanted to fulfill all righteousness to ensure that he was aligned with his Father's will, that he wanted to receive his Father's blessing, and that he was fully prepared for the challenges and mission that lay ahead of him. I am certain that he knew what was in store for him, what his future held as he started his journey, but this was the strength of Christ's conviction and the commitment of utter obedience to his Father. The prayer of Jesus opened the heavens, brought provision to the hungry and to those in need, gave him clarity for making decisions and brought the glory of God down to earth. Prayer still does all this and more for those who will learn to live their lives immersed in God. Through prayer, we recover the capacity for a continual communion of love with the living God as we plunge ourselves into its embrace. Prayer is a process of love, exchange for love. In its classroom, we learn how to live in this communion, to move to a quiet place amongst the busyness of this world and remember who is in control. Jesus was, in the words of the ancient creed, true God and true man. Sometimes we may think that he could pray and live this way because he was divine. However, we need to remember that in his sacred humanity, he also prayed. An example of this human frailty or vulnerability is when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed and asked God to remove the cup from him if possible. Yet, he said, "Not my will be done, Lord, but yours." He shows us the fulfillness of humanity and the way to become what spiritual writers have long called sons and daughters of the Son. Through prayer, we can cry out with Jesus, Abba, Father, no longer alienated from God. We can actually participate in the very life of the Trinity, the inner life of God. God dwells in us, and we dwell in him through his Holy Spirit. This is the heart of true prayer. As we heard from Graham a couple of weeks ago, Jesus normally prayed before major events. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus prayed for the choosing of the 12 disciples, the ones that became apostles out of the many disciples that followed him. And you don't have to turn to the passage, but I'll read it for you. And in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. In these verses, we're not given the detail of Jesus' prayer, but as Raf shared last week from John 17, we gain an insight into the people that Jesus prayed for about how he might glorify his Father by his own mission. And as he turns to the second part of the prayer, he talks to the Father about his disciples. And in John 17, verse 6 to 10, we read, I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the word you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I pray I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Notice how Jesus speaks of his disciples. They were the fathers given to Jesus out of the world. They weren't the fruit of Jesus' recruiting prowess, but the father's chosen gifts to his son. Prior to his redemptive work on the cross, Jesus labored, to reveal the Father to his disciples in word and in deed. God loves the world, the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He came as a light to the whole world, to give life to the whole world and to save the whole world. But here he's praying for his tiny band of brothers, those whom the Father had given him, the first recruits in what will become a mighty army of the redeemed. Jesus is not selfish or possessive of those the Father has given him. Jesus realises that he shares everything with the Father. They co-possess everything. And there is a sense in which we are co-heirs in this way, as we are one with Christ and the Father. We are his children, adopted into the family, justified and sanctified for everlasting life with the Father, to rule and reign with Jesus on his return. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ of God. And in Romans chapter 8 we read, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. And in John 17, verses 11 to 19, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Again, we're not given the details of this time in prayer that Jesus spent on the mountainside, other than he spent the night praying, and in the morning, 12 of the disciples were chosen to become apostles. We could guess what Jesus was praying about, but that's all it would be, guesswork. By looking at the Bible verses that we've read from John 17... By listening and reflecting on the messages from Graham and Raph that they've shared about Jesus' prayer life, it becomes less guesswork and more evidence-based. His Father is to be glorified and that through prayer, Jesus and God were aligned and those who who were to be selected as the apostles. That he was praying for unity, not only between himself and his Father, but that of the disciples and for all believers. I found that reading John 17 caused me to more to reflect on the heart of Jesus and how much he valued being in discussion with his Father. We know that Jesus understood the hearts and minds of men and women, what they were thinking, the state of their hearts, and what their motivations were. He himself would have been able to discern who the chosen apostles would be He could have chosen them by himself and not include his father. But he decides to pray, to talk to his father, that he accepts that the disciples were chosen from his father, that it was not him who chose them, but that God had given them and given them as gifts to Jesus. He submits to his father's will and then he acts and he calls the disciples to him so that he could choose the twelve. So what does this mean for us today? And how does it apply to our lives as disciples of Jesus and in becoming more like him? And what did the term apostle mean? The word apostle can be used in a broad or narrow sense. In a broad sense, it just means messenger or pioneer missionary. But in a narrow sense, the most common sense in the New Testament, it refers to a specific office, which is the apostle of Jesus Christ. These apostles had unique authority to establish and govern the early church, and they could write and speak as so they could speak and write the words of God and Many of their written words became the New Testament scriptures and in order to qualify as an apostle, someone had to have seen Christ with their own eyes after he rose from the dead and had to be specifically appointed by Christ as an apostle and given a commission. There were a limited number of apostles, perhaps 15 or 16 or even a few more. The New Testament doesn't provide the exact number. It seems that no apostles were appointed after Paul. And since no one today can meet the qualification of having seen the risen Christ with their own eyes, there are no apostles today. In place of living apostles present in the church to learn, to teach and govern it, We have instead the writings of the Apostles in the books of the New Testament. The New Testament scriptures fulfil for the Church today the absolutely authoritative teaching and governing functions which were fulfilled by the Apostles themselves during the early years of the Church. Though some may use the word Apostle today to refer to very effective church planters or evangelists, it's inappropriate and unhelpful because it confuses people who read the New Testament and see the high authority that's attributed to the office of apostle. It's noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, not Athenaeus or Augustine, not Luther or Calvin, not Wesley or Whitefield, has called himself or let himself be called an apostle. If anyone in this day and age wants to be called an apostle, they immediately raise the suspicion that they might be motivated by pride, ambition, and a desire f- for much more authority in the church than any per- one person should rightfully have. Except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can claim much more authority. Some may offer that Christ could appear to someone today and appoint themselves an apostle. But the foundational nature of an apostle and the fact that Paul views himself as the last one to whom Christ appeared and appointed as an apostle. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, last of all as to one untimely born, indicates that this will not happen. God's purpose in the history of redemption seems to have given apostles only at the beginning of the church age. Another objection to the idea that there are no apostles today one that comes specifically from the people in the charismatic or evangelistic movement, or sorry Pentecostal movement is that arguments about the fivefold ministry of ephesians four eleven should continue today, and we should have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, since Paul says that Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers however, ephesians four Eleven talks about a one time event in the past and note in there he says he gave which is the past tense when Christ ascended into heaven and then at Pentecost where it was poured out initial giftings onto the church giving the church apostles, prophets, evangelists pastors and teachers whether or not Christ would later give more people for each of these offices cannot be decided by this verse alone but must be decided based on the teachings of the New Testament on the nature of these offices and whether they were expected to continue. In fact, we see that there were many prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers established by Christ throughout all the early churches, but there was only one more apostle given in this time. Paul, last of all, in unusual circumstances on the Damascus Road. So if Paul was the last Apostle, then what can we learn from Jesus' prayer for his chosen 12? The Apostles had a special calling given to them by Jesus to build and to govern the early church. And it says from Ephesians chapter 2, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What else can we learn from Jesus' prayer? Are we apostles? From what we've learnt this morning, no, we're not. But we are his disciples. We should model our prayers for our fellow believers as Jesus prayed, for unity between us as individuals of God and for unity between each other, that we should remain in Christ that we will not fall away, that we will have joy, that we will be protected from Satan, and that God will sanctify us. And the last point, which is that he prayed before he teaches, and I won't read out the whole of Luke chapter 9, but I'll just read from verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. And what is it that gave Jesus' messages authority? It wasn't his natural charisma. It wasn't his booming voice. That's not what... Gave his words authority. As we look, if we were to read Luke chap, uh, voice, uh, chapter four, verse thirty-two, that he preached with authority. And uh, as we read, we find three characteristics of Jesus' teaching that gave him true authority. Number one, Jesus' teaching was rooted in God's word. Mark's account says he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes or teachers. When the scribes taught in the synagogue, they just quoted one expert after another, one opinion after another, and in one tradition after another. But Jesus spoke with the authority of God himself. Number two, Jesus' teaching was filled with application. In far too many churches today, the preachers unload knowledge without any application, and the people go away unchanged. God gave his word not to make us smarter sinners but to make us obedient followers of Christ. Look at what Jesus did, whether he was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount or through parables or through his discourse on the end times. He always included what we're supposed to be doing in light of that truth. Number three, Jesus' teaching was lived out in integrity. The word integrity means undivided or whole. A person who has integrity is a person whose life is in balance. There is no dichotomy or contradiction between what he says and how he lives. However, that wasn't true of the Pharisees. People knew that the Pharisees weren't living out what they professed to be true. If you're a teacher of God's word and you're not living out what you proclaim, then we have no authority. But Jesus lived out his message with integrity. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Contrary to the beliefs of many people in the first century, and even in our day and age, the primary purpose of Jesus in coming to earth to minister was not to heal the sick or perform other miracles, signs and wonders. As important as these were, they were secondary to his mission of preaching the truth about God and his kingdom. This is what we read in Mark when Simon and the other disciples came to Jesus to encourage him in his ministry of healing, pointing out the fact that many people were looking for him, Jesus did not decide to stay in Capernaum and continue healing. He instead said it was time for him to preach in other Galilean towns, establishing his reason for him coming was to preach. Specifically, Jesus came to preach the very thing that Mark describes in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, namely... The gospel of God. The miracles, signs, and wonders our Lord performed testify to the truth of His message, but they were not the ends in themselves. In fact, a miracle doesn't do any good for the people who receive it if they reject the gospel. Preaching the truth about the kingdom of God and how they may receive it by trusting only in Christ form the core of His message. And this message and this message of faith and repentance surpassed all of Jesus' miracles in terms of importance. This message cannot be separated from his work of atonement. <clears throat> Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And his salvation comes through the pouring out of his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. In coming to preach the gospel of God, Jesus came to preach himself. He came as both the messenger and the message without the atonement there is no good news to proclaim and when this good news is proclaimed accurately it pushes back the kingdom of darkness as we see in the mention of exorcisms alongside Jesus preaching in mark chapter 1 verse 39 christ did not go out on this preaching ministry in greater galilee until he first spent time praying in a desolate place The setting was similar to the wilderness in which Jesus was tempted by Satan but stood firm against the devil's attacks and received sustenance from his father through his word. Jesus, going out to pray, represented his seeking of the face of his father to sustain him in his resolve to complete the mission that God gave him, to be prepared inwardly and spiritually so that he could exercise his outward preaching ministry. That's why when Jesus taught, people sensed something was different. His teaching was rooted in the authority of God's word, his practical application, and that he lived out in integrity. As we come to a close this morning, there are two questions that I want to ask you all. Is prayer manifestly central to your life, your families, and your ministry as it was in Jesus' life? Is prayer manifestly central in our church and in our ministries as it was in Jesus' life? Those are the questions I'm asking you, challenging you with this morning. The reason I think prayer must be central rather than peripheral is that prayer is the means that God has ordained for us to receive supernatural help on a daily basis. Without supernatural help from our Father, we will not be able to accomplish anything that Jesus is asking us to do. It won't magnify Christ. We won't live lives worthy of the gospel. We won't be humble. We won't count others as more significant as ourselves. We won't put others' interests before ourselves. We won't be justified by faith. And we won't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We won't accomplish anything that is of eternal value if... We are not people of prayer. God was ordained to come in power through prayer. And if we neglect this means of receiving help from on high, from our Father, we can expect powerless ministry. And the world doesn't need any more Christians with powerless ministries. And how does that apply practically to us here at Montmorency this morning? If we look at what we've learned this morning, the three key things to take away are that Jesus prayed at the beginning of his ministry. He prayed at the time of calling of his disciples and he prayed before he started teaching. And I see six practical ways of using the three things that we've learned this morning. Firstly, pray that God will be glorified in all that we do and in the mission that he gave us. Secondly, pray for those who are starting out in their first ministry, that they will be like Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with purpose, and that they are obedient to God's word. Thirdly, pray for those who are returning to ministry, but for a new season, that they will be renewed, that they will continue to run the good good race. Fourthly, pray for existing disciples, that they will pray as Jesus did, that they will that as they pray and grow, that their love will abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insights that they can discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pray that we will put others' needs and interests before our own and that we will be unified in you, Christ Jesus. Fifthly, pray for new disciples, that their faith will be sustained, that the Holy Spirit will speak to them and nurture them, for the blessing that they are now a part of the body of Christ and that their love too will grow and abound more and more. Lastly, pray for those who teach that the Lord will anoint their words, that they will magnify Christ and that they will be sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit and by that of Christ himself. Can we commit to do that as a congregation, as a church and as a family of Christ? shall we put into practice the very things that we've just spoken about? I can't think of a better time to pray than now. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you gave us an example in your in your son, Jesus, Lord. And as he lived his life, Lord, and that as he, as we learn about his ministry, Lord, that he he just consistently showed, Lord, that he was in prayer and communication with you regularly, often, before, during major events, Lord. That he modelled on what we should be doing, Lord. That even though he was sinless in every single way, Lord, that he still showed us what we need to do. And as we learned from that example this morning, Lord, we pray... That you will be magnified, Lord, in everything that we do. That we pray that we will glorify you in the mission that you've given us, Lord. That as we go out and preach about you, Lord, that we share about the kingdom of God. That we will magnify you in what we do, Lord. That we will live a life consistently and that we have integrity in the life, in our actions and in our speech, Lord. We pray for those who are starting out in their first ministry that they will be like you, Lord, that they will be filled with your purpose, that they will know that you are with them and that they will be obedient to your word. We pray for those who are returning, Lord, or continue to teach, Lord, in their ministry. We pray that they will be refreshed, that they will continue to run the good race and that they will be obedient to your word. We pray for existing disciples, Lord. That we will pray as you pray, that we'll model our prayers after you, Lord. That we will grow, that our love for others will abound more and more, Lord, so we can discern what is best. We pray that we can put others' needs and interests above our own. We pray that we can be unified in you, Lord both as individuals and as a congregation together. We pray for those who are new, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit will go to speak to them, to nurture them, that we can help feed them their lives, that they can be a blessing to the body, and that their love too will grow and grow. And we pray, Lord, for all those who are teaching, whether it be from the front, or whether it be in our children's ministries, Lord, or our youth, or just the activities we do during the week, Lord, in our ministries. We pray that you will anoint the words, and that, Lord, that we know that when we go to to do our ministry, Lord, that we will have prayed with you, that we'll be seeking what you want us to do, and that we know, Lord, that we can go out confident that you are with us, that you have gone before us, And we pray all this in your name. Amen.